0: Welcome to another episode of No Challenges Remaining. I'm Ben Rothenberg, joined as always by my dear friend Courtney Nguyen. Hi, Courtney. Hello, Ben. How are you doing?
1: I am okay. I'm in a weird headspace right now, but we're going to go with it.
0: Oh, really? Yeah. I feel like you can't just leave that hanging there.
1: No, it's just been a weird 24 hour Not 24 hours, but it's been, like, a weird 48 hours of, like, really disjointed... Like, it was Chinese New Year, so I obviously celebrate that. And so, like, there was that whole thing on Saturday and Sunday. And then I got really addicted to, like, this video game that I played a lot when I was younger. And I realized that they had it for, like, the Mac now. And so I downloaded it. And so basically now I'm completely sleep-deprived and thoroughly frustrated because I haven't like I used to be able to beat this game like without even blinking and now I haven't and so I'm very very frustrated and I've lost a lot of sleep and so let's talk about tennis.
0: That's interesting actually <laughs> to not talk about tennis for a second because I've actually found for some reason when I've picked up like my N64 again as more of an adult now that I've better at it than it in some ways than it used to be in, like, quantifiable ways. Like, I'll, like, play Diddy Kong Racing or something and break all my old records and wonder why.
1: I think that that's right with respect to, like, those sorts of console games. This is, like, um, a bit of a a turn-based, like, Sid Meier's, like, civilization-type game where it's a bit more, like, not role-playing, but kind of strategy-based. And it's a fun game. It's called Colonization, where, like, you basically take on one of the four... Colonial powers, and each one of them has like their own kind of obviously like specialty skill set or whatever. You colonize a new world, and then you have to like declare independence and you have to like make good or not make good with the natives, um, and all this sorts of stuff. And in the meantime, like manage your resources and mine and farm and all this sorts of stuff. That sounds just like tennis, it exactly like tennis. It's kind of the long play of tennis, <laughs> but uh, yeah, it's I mean, it's super fun, but like I've been playing it and. Literally, six hours will pass, and I would not have moved from my seat. I had no, and I would have no idea that that happened, yeah, so it felt like thirty minutes, so anyways, but uh, yeah, so I'm in a weird headspace, but I feel like it is within this disjointed headspace that I'm best at talking about tennis because there's no filter
0: right exactly <laughs>
1: and tennis not it, double thing I'm not thinking hard about this
0: tennis is pretty disjointed in and of itself, so it is you are now you're ready to rock I am. On this show, we're going to talk about the long-awaited return of Rafael Nadal, the surprising split of the Bartoli family tennis juggernaut, and the prize money disputes currently causing trouble at the desert paradise oasis that is Indian Wells. Let's uh, let's get started. So let's get started with the big news of the past seven days, which has been the return of. Rafa Nadal. I was about to say triumphant return, but I don't think it really ended with a triumph per se. So uh, what do you make, Courtney, of Rafa's week in Viña? Yeah,
1: in Viña del Mar. I mean, I think that um, from what I've seen, kind of, there's there's the two camps that, that have reacted to kind of what happened in, in Chile. And, and there's the side that says, you know, everybody calmed down and be and, and you know, this is his first tournament back in over seven months, and he still made the final and he made everybody look kind of like mincemeat, uh, in the midst of it, even though we all knew he wasn't playing his, his A game. And then he ran into a guy who was zoning on that particular day and he was not able to kind of access that extra level to be able to to bat back uh Zabios. So that's one camp, and then you have the other camp, which is oh my god the sky is falling Rafa's never going to be able to win anything ever again he can't even win like a whatever 250 tournament on clay in Chile against a bunch of nobodies he lost to somebody out ranked outside of the top 50 for the first time in nine years like all these sorts of things Mm -hmm. Um, and I see the merit to both I I definitely side more towards the like everybody calm down it's it's, um, just his first tournament back and there were a lot of things that I saw that I liked that surprised me in a positive way. And, and yeah, and then the rest of the stuff was pretty much more just expected rust, in my opinion. So that was kind of my overall take. I I really didn't think that it was that big of a deal that he lost, aside from the fact that Horacio Zabios is now, like the go-to trivia answer for any question related to a Rafa boss on clay courts.
0: <laughs> Seriously, he, before he was just like one of those guys whose name meant Onion, along with Flavia uh, Chipola. Chipola. Chipola, yeah. So uh, so that's a big, big notch in Horatio's belt. I, I gotta say, I was fairly... Hmm, I expected better from Rafa this week. Maybe that's unfair because of just how high he set the bar in the past, and that's clearly why I thought it. But at the same time, he... I think everybody kind of expected him to win this tournament. Or at least I thought that if he was going to lose and really show up flat, he would do it earlier. For him to kind of go pretty, win in straight sets in his first three matches pretty easily, especially over Shardy, who did not play well at all from what I saw in that match. And then to not close out the title and really struggle to break serve of a guy who's not, you know, an amazing server. I don't know. I was left a little bit underwhelmed at the very end by this. And I that does not mean whatsoever that I think that he's never going to win a title again, that he's not still, you know, I'm not still expecting him to be very much at the top of things in Monte Carlo and the French Open and stuff. But I think that there's still clearly maybe more rust. The rust is a little bit slower to get moved than maybe I thought it might be.
1: I mean, that, that, that's fair, I think. I mean, I, I, having wa- I watched all four matches that he did play. Okay. And... I watched
0: three of the four. I didn't watch the jimeno Trever one.
1: Yeah, I mean, and and it, you know, one thing that you know the, the positives that I saw were that was that as time went on, even within the match or from match to match, he was getting better. Um, I think that the the two biggest or the two biggest like glaring holes or deficiencies, I suppose, within his game that I saw was a just the depth on his shots. I felt like he was, you know, and that's a confidence issue. You can kind of tell sometimes that he's just not going for it. As much as he needs to, and yeah. just the way that he hits the ball with such tremendous topspin that you really do have to go after the ball in order to get it deep and generate that that type of topspin. So a lot of the balls were falling like right around the service line, yeah. um, which was which was just. Uh, and I think that that really goes into uh, at least my observation that that as well as Zabio's played, and I thought that he played tremendously well. As well as he played, I think that Nadal just really couldn't kind of beat him back.
0: Right, that was the thing. Nadal was not taking command of rallies in a way that you expect Nadal to do on play. He was staying sort of in neutral and a lot of times I felt like guys except from the very beginning with uh, whoever he played first who had Delbonis Mm -hmm. who really seemed to be jumping on passive Rafa very quickly. Mm -hmm. Uh, The other guys I didn't feel like did that as much and obviously this is I feel like some of those matches, the scorelines were at least a reflection of Nadal's reputation I and mean, sort of, you know, giving him maybe more respect with how you played than actually was his level at that stage of the tournament at certain points. And then I think it kind of caught up to him in the end. I mean, that's he did make the final in his first time back and he hadn't played in seven months, but still, it, it was hard for me to give Nadal too much slack at a South American 250 on clay, fair or unfair
1: i I. I don't know if that's fair, but I understand it. I mean, yeah. I. You know, I, I mean, I understand like obviously that, you know, Rafa has set the bar a certain level, and we're used to him being able to play. Just kind of, you know, out, you know, open the box and out goes Rafa and energizes a bunny and right. he just kind of locks and loads and. But I think the things that I saw, that I thought that I would kind of consider rust were really kind of more it was more mental than it was physical. So it was and a lot of that obviously flows together in terms of muscle memory and right. things like that, but um but you know how many throughout the week the number of drop shots that that Rafa didn't even kind of go for was kind of one of those things I was like okay he's not match fit yet and that's not to say that he's not like strong and healthy and like whatever but he's not like recognizing the rhythms of a match yeah and and identifying kind of you know like it's you imagine like like in the matrix like neo it's like it's kind of like not like the beginning of the movie the matrix but like kind of in the middle where he kind of gets it but not quite yet yeah. Um. I feel like that's that's where Rafa is, um, right now, and and that's just that'll be solved with matches. Yeah. So...
0: I'm totally I'm totally not pessimistic about it. I want to distinguish. Right, that. Right, I, right. I think that I think I was not impressed by this week. However, I don't think there's any reason to fear about the future for him. I think there's a difference there, and I think he's gonna he's gonna get there. And I think that actually one of the interesting things when he did seem to be clicking more his game and his movement just seemed a little bit different, especially on his serve. And actually Justin Gimelstab, who was down there in Chile doing an interview with Nadal, which for some reason they're not airing for a few more weeks, which seems like odd timing considering how big news it is that he's there right now. He was saying that Nadal looked a lot thicker, just like more bulkier than usual. Maybe not as, mm-hmm. cause for, as big as Nadal looked on TV, at least for me having been around a lot of like, NHLers and stuff before who were they're all way bigger than a doll. The doll has like big biceps and stuff, but actually his waist has always been pretty small.
1: I totally agree. I've ne- I've personally never really understood the whole like Rafa as Incredible Hulk thing. No. Like, because when you actually see him, he looks like a normal dude. I mean, like a, a strong guy that works out, but yeah. like, not like... He never looks like he's like, bold. I mean, he's, he's no never someone who Dasko. would walk into
0: a hotel lobby like in a normal outfit. And you'd be like, whoa, whereas right. the NHL guys absolutely give that off. <laughs> so, yeah, but I think that it almost reminded me a little and he was going for a lot more on his serve than he had in recent years. And so it almost reminded me a little bit and we'll have to see how this pans out. But it reminded me a little bit of Justine Ennan when she made her comeback mm. um, in 2010. And she was really a lot more aggressive than she had been before and really trying to make points shorter, which she had said was to help her win Wimbledon, which I thought was a little bit odd because Wimbledon's only two weeks a year. But Nadal seems to be trying to move himself in a direction where he can play shorter points in sort of a self-preservational way. And so he is trying to add power or aggression or free points on serve and not engaging in the sort of running down drop shots, you know, baseline corner to corner to corner for hours on end stuff that he made a living with in years past. So it'll be interesting to see if that if that tactical switch
1: Yeah, keeps I, going. I, I yeah, I saw that as well. I mean, yeah, in his serve and then also just a lot of it happened a little bit more early on in the tournament than towards the latter half, but like there were there were definitely moments, especially in that first match against uh Delbonis where he the footwork was so crisp getting around the ball for him to get his forehand and just you know, r- you know, ripping it down the line in a way that it looked rushed initially because you're just kind of used to Rafa maybe not doing that as much. And then, but it was so effective, and and it reminded me a little bit of his Australian Open run. What was that, 2010?
0: When you won it, 2009. Yeah.
1: 2000, yeah, 2009, where he kind of came out and all of a sudden he was, in, or even the U.S. Open when he won it that one year, where all of a sudden he was like serving bombs.
0: Yeah, it was that one U.S. Open where he played like totally differently.
1: Yeah, which was, and it was like my favorite Rafa moment ever. Because I just prefer him pl- to play like that because then you feel like he has a future because <laughs> yeah. he just can't grind himself down into a down to a nub uh, every single week, which, you know, he has to know.
0: So uh, so he's going to be playing a lot more as of now. He's already in Sao Paulo to play there. He is playing Acapulco and then he's playing Mass Garden Exhibition and he's still on the schedule for both Indian Wells and Miami are still on the list anyway. So so we'll see how it goes based on this first week and getting to the final in singles and doubles, and entering both singles and doubles in uh, Sao Paulo. Do you do you expect him to play all those tournaments? Do you have any sense of that yet?
1: I really don't. I don't. I. Don't, I mean. I'm, I mean. Sorry. I really don't have a sense of that yet. Yeah, me yet. neither. <laughs> um. I. I. Um... I could see him playing Indian Wells and skipping Miami.
0: Especially since he just left IMG. That seems to be the thing to do to sort of exactly stick kind of it to IMG lately.
1: Kind of F you to IMG. Although at the same time, like he has such like kind of that Latin American fan base that's there, that, that is there for him, that love him. But I could see him kind of skipping that to just get back, right back on clay. Because then it doesn't become like, even if he, because if he goes through the first three clay tournaments, and then he goes to Indian Wells and he doesn't do well at Indian Wells. say so he crashes out in the third round. And then he, like, pulls out of Miami and then just goes back to Europe and trains on red clay and then shows up in Monte Carlo and runs the table. That just kind of makes – it just makes more sense than, like, crashing out the third round or fourth round of India Wells and then doing, like, the same. And, like, why would you tee yourself up to, like, have this four-week span of just really – confidence debilitating tennis right what's the point
0: no i agree i just hope that if he is feeling any sort of exhaustion cause this is a lot of matches in a short time for a guy who hasn't played that much lately especially it's a lot for
1: anybody who has played it is right like it doesn't matter it's a huge load
0: i just hope that if he i would love to see him pull out of acapulco and that's the one he can really get rid of if he if he plays the full i mean i think it would be i'd love to see him pull out. It's probably not the best way to put that i think it would be be a very prudent move from Deploy of Acapulco if he has another full week. If you let's say he wins the title or something in Sao Paulo, because it's just diminishing returns at some point with these the South tournaments. But
1: he'll to have a week, right?
0: Right, but why not have two? Yeah. So I
1: guess.
0: so we'll see. Obviously he, he knows how he's feeling, but just the, the amount of stuff on his plate right now is daunting. And uh especially for some you know. It's like when you haven't when you're really hungry and you go to the grocery store and you buy all this stuff and you, you get home and you're like, What was I thinking? So that's the analogy I'll close with there.
1: <laughs> How, like, you you recounted that analogy with such utter, like, shame and disdain and bitterness.
0: Self-loathing, Because it's yes.
1: happened so many times. So much. So, so much. Too many Tim Tams in Australia, huh?
0: Not, there could never be too many Tim Tams in Australia. I actually, spent <laughs> most of my leftover uh, Australian currency at the uh, bus station to the airport on 7-Eleven on Tim Tam. so... <laughs> There was a four for three sale, which seemed like a great idea at the time. Secretly, oh, not that much of a bargain.
1: Less. And let me guess, none of it was. I mean, you basically boarded the plane with like a, cho- a ring of chocolate around your mouth.
0: Oh, yeah. I have to assume. Well, yeah. Actually, one package did make it all the way back to the U.S., which I was very proud of myself for.
1: That's impressive.
0: It lasted one more day once it got here. Shocking. So one of the most surprising stories of this week, I think actually more surprising than any result that could have happened with Rafa in Chile, although under far less of a magnifying glass, happened in French women's tennis uh, with Marion Bartoli announcing that she is no longer going to be traveling with her father and is looking for someone else to help her with her career, which... It's a huge, huge switch for anybody who knows anything about Marion Bartoli's career and's ever seen her at a tournament. I mean, those pe- those two are just, you know, attached to the hip completely, and sometimes literally. Sometimes, sometimes, sometimes literally <laughs> sometimes by chains tables. and stuff. Yes, or she's attached <laughs> to the fence and he's watching. Yeah. So, what what do you make of that? And especially the timing of it coming maybe as Marion played Fed Cup for the first time in several years under new French captain Amélie Maresmo.
1: Yeah, I mean, I thought that that was actually kind of the most poetic part of the whole story was just that, you know, for so long, Bartoli had not uh, played Fed Cup because of the FFTs. Rule about not allowing private coaches to be part of Fed Cup, and she wanted her dad to obviously coach her during the the Fed Cup tournament, just like any other tournament. And the FFT said no, and that was really the cause of the rift and why she wasn't at the Olympics. London Olympics, yeah. which is brutal. Thought that was just a really cruel, cruel way for that whole thing to end.
0: Especially because she could have done well there. That was on
1: yeah, glass. that that was that was her. That was the one that she should have. But she should have done well. And I think what like France ended up sending. They got, they, got,
0: they got no female, no indirectly. singles, just doubles, and no. But they they got no one indirectly. corne got a wild card in, okay, but they didn't qualify anybody. So it was just yeah. for Grand Slam nation. That's pretty pathetic.
1: When you have somebody in the top ten,
0: yeah, seriously,
1: <laughs> you know it's it's brutal.
0: Brutal. It was you know cutting off your you know nose to spite your face or whatever that.
1: Exactly. Is. But yeah, so so obviously she she has since uh, made amends uh, with the FFT. I think uh, I think Amalie Maresmo did have a lot to do with that, uh, having been come the newly appointed Fed Cup captain. Yeah, Amelie so Bartoli- was at
0: her matches and stuff all through the US Open last year.
1: Oh, she was fist pumping at Amelie like there was no tomorrow when she bageled Kvitova. Mm-hmm.
0: And then as soon as Bartoli wasn't la- wasn't looking, Amelie would, would laugh because you have to <laughs>
1: when you see that. <laughs> because Amelie Moresmo is a normal human being. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So, and then she, so she, you know, obviously that, that all seems to be okay. And then she goes and uh, announces this. I mean, I think it's a great move. I think that you know, I would have liked to have seen her do it about three years earlier. Uh, she is 28 now. Uh, she's not uh, a young buck anymore. Um, and just the type of game that she has, I think that any coach, uh, that she picks up to the extent that she gets a new coach, it, it's going to take a while to acclimatize, um, and kind of get used to just the type of game that she plays and, and,
0: her, and her personality
1: and her personality and all these sorts of things. And so I, I do think it's a little bit, it's a little late to make this change,
0: but better late than never.
1: Yeah, but better late than never. And it has worked for people. I mean, you look at like Lena. You know, major coaching changes happen and it seems to do well for her. The difference, though, I think, is that, like, she, like, with Lena's situation, she was never with a coach like her husband. Because she like was so wedded to, well, I mean, she was wedded to her husband, but like not (laughs) like so, yeah, bad word choice. Um, But was not so like attached to her husband being her coach the way that Marion is attached to Walter being her coach. So it was more like Lena and her husband were paired up because she just didn't have any other options. And so when she had other coaches, whether it was Michael Mortensen or or, um, Carlos Rodriguez, it's worked out really well. I mean, and their their opinions like matter so much to her, whereas I feel like with Bartoli, I can see her being in a situation I I would throw, you know, other other I would throw Caroline yeah, into that's... this group as well of, of people who are so affirmatively attached to their parents as coaches that if they get a new voice in it, it's going to be pretty tough for them to trust and to kind of really soak it in and and, and take it as new. So I'm not really sure that it's going to work out well for her, but I do wish that she had done it like three years ago.
0: I think that, I mean, she did have some pretty good results in 2011. She made the French semifinals and Wimbledon quarters, and, and she beat Serena at Wimbledon. I mean, she has done, and she obviously did made the quarters of the U.S. Open, too. So I'm not sure exactly what inspired the timing of this. I'm not sure that the last three years necessarily been squandered I do think that if she was going to do this she should have done it before the Olympics because I mean I guess seriously that was that just seemed like a, a tough thing to miss on principle like that
1: a principle that she was very willing to principle change. that
0: she got rid of like eight months, months later, later. Yeah, yeah so that's so that's a bit that's a bit iffy <laughs> But I, I do think it is tough to – it's much tougher than people say when people talk about Wozniacki especially, say, or Tomek. They say, oh, you know, just get rid of the dad and everything will be better. It's, you know, it's your parents, and it's, they're just – they're especially with, with Bartoli and a little lesser extent with Wozniacki, but not really. They're just so intrinsically attached to what tennis is for you.
1: Yeah, and I think that it, the other thing that you have to take into consideration is just that I think when you look at Bartoli and Walter – and you look at Caroline and Peter, that they genuinely do love each other. Yeah. Like, I mean, Caroline adores her father. I mean, feels like he's like there for her and in her corner and backs her. And, you know, and I think that Bartolome and Marion thought the same thing about Walter. And I think that that is what differentiates those father daughter or, you know, parent child coaching relationships. That differentiates them from a Redvanska. Right. Who her dad? She never really kind of you could tell there was friction there. First chance that she got to where she could get out of that situation, she did it and it worked out really well for her. So that's why it's a case I'm by still, case thing. It is, it is.
0: Yeah. So is. so that's basically what it is. So is. I'll be, I'll be very interested to to talk to her about it, Indian Wells, and to sure. uh, and to see how she plays and who she picks. Um, if she does get Maresma to come on full time, that'd be interesting. Mm-hmm. Or even in a part-time sort of Lendl type basis I think is entirely possible. I could use that as a blueprint. Yeah, I, it'll be interesting because I do think that she, I think she totally has another slam semi-final at least in her and, I could see that. And uh, it's just a matter of a draw-breaking there right have way I, to- I, haven't, I haven't given up on her as a, a potential slam champion one day. Weirder things have definitely happened For sure we mentioned talking to Bartoli and while Wallace there, and that'll be the next tournament each of us is going to, I believe. Is that right? Are you going to San Jose at all?
1: Yes, I'll, I'll be going to bits and pieces of San Jose. Uh, the last staging of the SAP Open. Yes. Uh, yes, is this week, so I'll be I'll be down there.
0: That was a marathon order play today they had. Yeah. I don't know if you saw it starts at 9:30 a.m. and oh, includes seven I saw. matches.
1: Oh, Yeah, like um. Oh boy. One of one of my good friends, your buddies with him as well, Nick McCarville. Yeah. In town, and he was going to go to the open uh, for the first few days, and so he was like, "Are you coming down on Monday?" I was like, "Dude, no, <laughs> that's just not going to happen. <laughs> I'll come down starting Tuesday." But um,
0: I'm sure that Smichek Chvojka quality match was awesome, and it went 7-5 only on only third.
1: you, Ben. That's only you. Yeah, that's a Rothen That's a Rothenburg special.
0: I have actually have no idea who Eric Chvojka is, and the fact that he's ah. North America. I, I, I've seen the name, but I'd never be able to recognize him or anything.
1: Mm. You?
0: Do you? Would you recognize Eric Schwoika?
1: No, but that, that doesn't, I don't think that would shock anybody <laughs> that I would not recognize that name. <laughs> okay. But yes, no, so I'll be at uh, San Jose, but I mean, that's in my home area. Yeah. So the first traveling slam that I think both you, or traveling tournament that both you and I will be going to is Indian Wells.
0: Yes. So when we're there, um, there will probably still be a lot of talk about this dispute that's going on now, which you wrote about for Beyond the Baseline. So why don't you tell us about why the ATP seems to want its players to get paid less?
1: Yeah. It's just such a curious, curious dispute. But the the background of it is this, is that Indian Wells, you know, it's a fantastic tournament. It, it just it's so is great. Um, so great. Um I don't think I think that anybody who says who shrugs at it and tries to to like talk it down is being just contrarian, just to be contrarian. It is everything that you think that a tennis tournament should be. But anyways, they have been unabashed in their desire to be the best tournament in the world. Oh, yeah. And whatever that means. And so ever since 2010, after getting backed by Larry Ellison, who's the CEO of Oracle, if you don't know, and is a very, very wealthy man, um, who is a tennis fan. And in a lot of ways, it's kind of... Every tennis fan's wet dream, kind of what Larry Ellison has done. He's just like a ridiculously wealthy guy who bought like one of the biggest tournaments in the world. He's the sugar daddy tennis, always needed. Yeah. And he's just like, I want it, I want to run it the way that I want to run it. And I'm not worried about return, I'm not worried about profit. I'm not worried about all that. I just want it to be awesome. So, and that's really what has been going on the last couple of years in terms of a lot of the, the upgrades and things like that. It's just been tremendous and, and um, really has made it uh, even more fan friendly than it was before. But anyways, the dispute basically surrounds the fact that Indian Wells wants to pay the ATP a crap load of money and the WTA.
2: They'll it's, play the a on
1: prize money. The prize money because it's equal prize money. So both sides will get the same amount of money. But they wanted to pay, what was it, eight hundred thousand dollars more per per tour, uh over the minimum. So one point six million above. I can't remember what the, the total was. Chime in if you want, Ben, but I, don't, I can't remember. And I, I don't have it in front of me. But yeah, so Indian Wells wanted to pay a bunch of money. They thought it was gonna be a slam dunk, especially all things considered. Everybody's complaining about prize money these days. Who the doesn't men?
2: like money? More Who doesn't money? like
1: money? um and it went to vote on the ATP board and the ATP board voted well it didn't pass it didn't it's not that they voted no it just didn't pass it didn't have enough votes to pass so the ATP uh board of directors is made up of 3 of uh, 7 votes 3 are players reps 3 are tournament reps and one is the CEO Brad Druid and the three turn, uh, player reps voted for it obviously cuz players love the money the three tournament reps voted against it Uh, because they don't well ostensibly because they don't want indian wells to up the prize money so high so that the players have leverage to force all of the tournaments like masters tournaments and whatnot to pay the same amount of money so they didn't want to give the players leverage to pay out more they wanted to keep it at the minimum yeah so the tournament reps voted no and i have to say the most shocking thing to me is that brad drewitt abstained yeah he would have been the tie-breaking vote he's a ceo uh chairman or whatever of the atp and he didn't vote so it was three three deadlocked so it didn't pass and yeah So So here's,
0: here's the thing from the tournament reps point of view which is where i think they're kind of confused or at least maybe being a little paranoid about this i feel like players recognize the players all the top players male and female, all know who Larry Ellison is when they are at Indy Wells. They realize that he's this like magical you know, Mr. Moneybags wandering around giving money. And I think they realize that there's not one of him at every tournament.
2: Right.
0: People haven't been, and the thing that I think you can really point to on this is that I've never heard a single player say all tournaments should have Huck on every court just like Indian Wells does. No, they realize Indy Wells has special resources that other tournaments don't have. And so I don't think just because Indy Wells gets more prize money that they're suddenly going to be saying, hey, what's the deal with you, you know, uh, Casablanca? Why not pay up?
2: It's it's just not
1: going to happen. Right. Because one of the biggest, I mean, the biggest difference with respect to Indy, you know, comparing Indy Wells to all the other tournaments is that it's not, I mean, Larry Ellison really, it's not that he wants the tournament not to make money. Obviously, it's making money. But... Basically everything that the tournament makes, he's cool with just reinvesting it back into the tournament. Yeah. To make it better. It's a fa- so, yeah, it's a vanity I, project for him in a lot of ways. It, it's, I, I mean, and that's why I'm saying it's like a total wet dream of any tennis fan. Like if you had all the money in the world, and you lived in the states, okay, so you lived in America, and you had to you got to pick whichever tournament you wanted, and you could buy it, and you could make it the tournament that you wanted. Wouldn't you buy Indian Wells? Wouldn't you know? Because you'd buy a combined mandatory tournament. Yep. It would be, be it would be between Indian Wells or Miami. I've been to both tournaments. I
0: would be, we both took Indian Wells.
1: Yeah, I'd yeah. rather be in Indian Wells than Miami. Simply, I mean, even just weather-wise, I'd rather deal with Indian Wells' dry desert heat than Miami, like
2: gross swamp humidity. Yeah.
1: yeah, and then like yeah, you know what? I'm gonna install Hawkeye on every single court, and I'm gonna just post up the 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 practice schedules on these LED screens these LED st- poles yeah. all over the 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 tournament grounds and I'm going to expand I'm going to you know people it's it's hot out here in the desert I'm going to put up a shade structure An enormous I enormous t- a temporary a temporary but like permanent shade structure structure for everybody and I'm going to redo. I mean it's just it's ridiculous it really is like kind of um how much that tournament has changed in the last like couple years but but yeah, so the ATP voted it down, and um, a- apparently, according to Justin Gimelstob, who he says and who is one of the player reps on the ATP Board of Directors, mm-hmm. who and all three player reps voted for the prize money increase. He said that he's confident that you know common sense will prevail, and that uh, they're revoting this week, and that it'll it'll go through. Yeah. But it's just, but even if, whether it does or it doesn't, it just it highlights. So so brightly, the oh, conflicts of interest so much, in tennis.
0: So much, and that
1: it, it's comical.
0: It is because you, can, you can't get mad. Justin Gimelstob just recently, quoted in several pieces, talking on behalf of the ATP about how the U the U.S. needs to step up and need to pay more prize money for the uh, players at the U.S. Open. And J- Gimelstob himself has not flipped up on this, but the ATP stance as you know a whole, and clearly it's mm-hmm. not a whole in this case has totally gone back and forth. How can you say, you must give us more money, but you, you have to give us less. It just, it just doesn't make sense. And well, and, yeah. and the other thing about this, we haven't really mentioned directly, is that the women are totally getting screwed by this as well. Because if the ATP vetoes the money, the women don't get it either. And their money goes down also. Because part of the, the, way the equal prize money is set up, is that it has to say equal.
1: Yeah, and and one of the developments and, and why this story picked up some steam towards the end of last week is that Indian Wells, the CEO of Indian Wells, Raymond Moore, came out and said, okay, fine. If the ATP doesn't want our money, then we are going to revert back to our 2011 benchmark, which is basically they would go back to whatever the 2011 prize money figures were. And then it includes a 9% increase for each following year. So it wouldn't be exactly 2011, but it's 2011 plus 9% plus 9% off that. Right? That would have been the prize money for 2013. And- that would have been less than what the players got last year, because last year the players, the men's champion got a million bucks, and the women's champion got a million bucks. Yeah. And back in 2011, which was just a year previous, I think the women's champion got seven hundred thousand dollars, and the men's champion got six hundred eleven thousand dollars. The prize money was equal, but the distribution was different. Because so, the tours
0: have different rules about the right. ratio in which it has to be done. Yeah. No, I think that it just hopefully common sense will prevail, and if there is you know, if Indian Wells does get approved and does raise the bar and does put heat on the other tournaments to step up their game, good.
1: That's exactly. what competition
0: is all about, and like you like, know, the free market.
1: I was I, before I became a tennis writer. I was an attorney, and when I was an attorney, the type of the law that I practiced was pure competition law. It was just antitrust law, and these that's why these conflicts of interest within tennis bother me so much because so much of it just really comes across as just anti-competitive behavior. It just is, yeah. you know, like if, if you have this one tournament that wants to be best and it wants to innovate and it wants to do all the things that a tournament should want to do. If the tournament has the resources to give, to provide a better product to the consumers and all the other competitors are, are getting together to stifle that, that makes absolutely no sense. And it just, it totally peeves me like on a, just a very, just base level. Um, because if, if, Indian Wells wants to be the rogue runaway baby, um, and it wants to be bigger and better than everybody else, and everyone else is scared of that? That's ridiculous. It's not very impressive, to say that. It's least. not impressive. And it was interesting, too, because Raymond Moore did this like Q&A thing that was posted on mydesert.com. Mm-hmm. And um, he was saying that, because there's all these renovations and things like that that are going on to the site, the Indian Wells Tennis, uh, Tennis Center, Tennis Club. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it could be that by 24, right now, like he said, the site can accommodate probably about 400,000 people over the course of the 12 days. But after all of the site improvements are done, it could, he thinks, uh, accommodate up to 500,000, which means that if they ran it and if they got, I mean, if they could do it, they could actually draw more than Wimbledon and the French Open
0: they're no longer the fifth slam they're like the third slam at that yeah. point yeah
1: you know and and that's what they want i mean and he i mean to his credit he said the right thing which is he's like look the four slams are the four slams because they they have the tradition and they are i mean we are not them right. but you know we're flattered to be in the conversation we're flattered to be mentioned and you know indian wells is it's no joke i mean it's you know <laughs> i'm a cynical cynical person Yeah. <laughs> I love irony, and I love making fun of things, and I, I very rarely can say a bad thing about that tournament.
0: Yeah, agreed. Hopefully not everyone gets a horrible virus this year. We can say that.
1: Yes, well, you and I have immune systems of steel, apparently. Apparently.
0: So. Air high five. Way to go. Air high
1: five. There you
0: go. Courtney, we got a bunch of questions delivered to us on Twitter and our Facebook page. I think we're going to use the Facebook questions to our specially... Interesting, I thought we th- this week. So let's go with some of those. Uh, why don't you give us the first one that we got on our Facebook page, which you should all like at Facebook.com/slash NCRPodcast. Courtney, what do our Facebook likers have for us today?
1: Yes, I mean I think that the part of the reason why I think the Facebook questions are Particularly intriguing is because they are not confined to 140 characters.
0: Right, that's big. Not not a level playing field there. Right,
1: it's not a level playing field. So we apologize to the tweeters. Um, but we're, we're not trying to slight twe- the
0: tweeters. We we're both Twitter people. Exactly. But you know, so there we
1: but go. But we we're also writers, so and we, I think we know <laughs> that we can probably get more across when we are not limited to the 140. But Definitely. but uh, most of the questions that we're posted on Facebook kind of are, uh, you know, those behind the scenes type. Uh, questions I suppose that um a she lot people of people seem to like so much yeah and you know Ben and I can only hope that we can give you accurate information I mean uh, we'll, we'll do our best we're gonna try we're gonna try so the first question is from Katya Sapic, I believe if Hi, Katja. I'm pronouncing that correctly hello Katya and the question is I would love to learn something about the players accommodations during a tournament do they all stay in the same hotel do all the players get the same room size or does or do the top 10 get suites? Are there players who ignore the t- hotel and tournament offers? What happens to the entourages? So, yeah. So, that's kind of the question. So, Ben, what are, what's, how do you respond to Katya's question?
0: So, basically, I think the way it works is that almost every tournament has at least one tournament hotel. Usually, oftentimes, more than one where players get a certain rate and players pay for their own hotels at almost all tournaments and they get to pick, but they get to pick between one and two. And they're also always welcome to go off-book and just, you know, go on Hotels.com and find wherever they want. That happens with media, too. Actually, there's media hotels often where you can get a media rate somewhere, which is nowhere near free ever, unfortunately. Yeah, you can, and then you can ignore that and get your own place as well. So that's basically what it is, and players have different preferences. The main tournament where I think we've been to the most times together is Cincinnati. (laughs)
1: <laughs> oh that's so sad
0: it's kind of sad it's true though it, 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 it kind of it's, it's sad but also but also sort of nice
1: oh but we love it so we, it's do, fine. We, we
0: do love it and cincinnati um actually the players all you know better than me on this maybe but the players all used to stay at like two hotels and now they've added more hotels and now some are like nadal i know notably stays outside of mason and like in downtown cincinnati or something and some of them you know find a house to rent and stuff so there's really all sorts of different ways to go about it
1: yeah, I mean, that's basically how it goes is that, you know, the tournament provides, you know, a hotel and a rate to players um, and their, quote unquote, entourages, you know, coaches and things like that. And that's all up to the player to pay. And I think that's something that people do kind of um, not realize. And not, I don't know if it's realized or not, but just how much a, fit, a coach and a physio um, that, that you're paying for their rooms as well.
0: And often their meals and stuff. And there are and the tournaments right. can sometimes offer appearance fees to cover stuff, but it wouldn't usually happen at mandatory tournaments now, which is actually part of the reason players don't like mandatory tournaments is because
1: the, you know, there's less leverage for them. Right, right. The, the tournament's mandatory, so the tournament doesn't have to give them any freebies or perks or things like that. Right. Um. But yeah, so you'll have you know one or two main hotels. The qualifiers, interesting uh, detail. The qualifiers have a separate hotel. A mm-hmm. uh, separate rate, uh typically. So that's always kind of amusing to me. But yeah, and so at any tournament, if you can find out where the tournament hotel is, like chances are you're gonna see about 80% at a minimum of the players.
0: This is good stalking uh, advice,
2: by the way, people.
1: Yeah, it's 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 good, you know, just find the hotel bar and just chill out there or sit in the lobby and uh you'll see your your favorite players walk on by. Um, and then typically, like you know, the five percent, ten percent, fifteen percent of the the players, uh, depending on the size of the tournament, will will stay elsewhere. I know for like the U.S. Open, the Waldorf Astoria and the Renaissance, like all of the the Parker Meridian, like all of those tur- those hotels right in Midtown, are kind of the main tournament hotels. In but, New York, there's like, so
0: many options for people.
1: Right, but so those are the main hotels, and then obviously, like I think Sharapova has stayed at the Gross the Grosfort. Is that what it's called, Gansavort? Gansevoort Hotel which is like in Hell's Kitchen I think I could be wrong I don't know why I'm even Talking about New York I don't know anything (laughs) about New York Uh, But yeah and like Novak stays out In New Jersey um, and stuff Like that but like I do remember One year like I did stay when I went To the US Open um, as a fan, I stayed at like one of the the player hotels, which was like the 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 more cheap the cheaper one. It wasn't the Waldorf and it wasn't the Parker. It was like a different hotel, and Andy Murray was staying at that hotel. Oh. <laughs> and I found that comp- I was totally amused. He he was staying there, and Stozer was staying there, that, and Bartoli and Vera.
0: It all makes sense. They just yeah. I mean, Andy just needs an outlet to plug in his PlayStation. He'll be
1: good. <laughs> and he's good to go.
0: And he's pretty much good to go. Um, there was another related question to this. Actually, there was. Why don't we go with um,
1: so, that now? Yeah, so Matthew Niger uh, writes, what services do the players receive at tournaments that we would find surprising?
0: So there's a few. Um, I just came back from the Australian Open, and one of the things that they do there for people, among a lot of other things, I mean, the Australian Open definitely, of the slams, definitely has the most sort of try-hardiness to it, <laughs> it which does. is which is very the players-like, where um, mm-hmm. some of the other tournaments don't so, give off that you know visible effort all the time uh one of the things that i had contact with at least is the transport because if you're like a media person staying there till half an hour after the last press conference and leaving every day at two fifteen a.m um oftentimes if you to leave on time you can still take advantage of the tournament's transportation uh services which is just them um, giving you a ride in a sponsored kia minivan somewhere um, which is very very appreciated for those of us who are staying, especially a few miles considering how expensive
1: site, it is in Melbourne and what a cab ride would cost. Oh
0: God, it would cost about eighty thousand dollars to get home in yes. a
1: cab. That, that's over the course 10, of fourteen.
0: Eighty thousand <laughs> divided by fourteen, in fairness, but a lot of money. And so, but some of the drivers would talk about other things they had done for for player. I mean, running players essentially on errands or just driving them places and coaches and whoever, anyone who walks in the office says, "I want to go there." They'll pretty much do it. Like one of the drivers is talking about how. Yvonne Lendl wanted to go golfing so she drove him to like some golf course 15 miles out of town and then they couldn't find the entrance and she was freaking out that she was keeping Yvonne Lendl, a healthy full like waiting in the back seat as she was <laughs> floundering to find the entrance uh, but anyway yeah but those are the kind of things that happen and transportation is a big one. not all tournaments do that. I've heard that play- certain players um, the main one a lot of players a lot of sorry a lot of tournaments will get players from the airport but not all. Um and some players really resent not getting picked up at the airport. I've heard. Yeah, and those are that's one of the main things. But there's also all sorts of things in the lounge and stuff, and that doesn't go into any like you know the physical uh, trainer stuff at all, which is all yeah. also there for them. But I think that probably is more tour operated usually.
1: Yeah, no, it's always a bit surprising. You know, you go into. I don't go. I don't get to go into kind of the player area very often. If you're an ITWA member, then you are allowed into, which is the International Tennis Writers Association. Right. If you're an ITWA member, then you are you get a special credential that allows you actually into like the players lounge and stuff like that. But
2: the restaurant,
1: yeah, yeah, the player restaurant and stuff like that. Um, but I'm not, so I don't actually get to go in there very often. But the times that I have, in order to do like specific interviews, where I get escorted back. It's all, it's like always really weird to me to like see like I think at Indian Wells I was interviewing Zheng Zhe and so it was the first time I ever went into the the player uh lounge area and there was like a an old eighties like pinball machine in the yeah. corner and like ping pong and like a pool table and bean bags and like it looked like a I mean it looked like a frat house like dorm suite. Oh that's and pretty the-
0: much what it is.
1: You know what I mean? Like, there's also, always, chill out.
0: there's also always tons of computers that yes. are like set up for people to use internet and stuff. And those are almost always occupied. Because people, yes. I guess now and now, a lot of players, one of the must have player accessories nowadays is the iPad. Correct. But uh, people still use those computers all the time. And there's uh, usually like a little snack bar for there and something. And then just tons and tons of couches. And you'll see players crashing in couches for hours on end. And these sort of patterns that would, you know, are sort can be sort of amusing if you have, you know
1: It really looks like high school. Yeah, no totally. Like you walk in and if you would imagine like a Nickelodeon high school. Like, you know, because it has all this weird like a lot of the places just have like a lot of like weird modern or weird funky furniture. Yeah. And but like everybody's kinda sitting with their entourages and like not really talking. So either either they're sitting with their big entourage. Like I remember seeing Venus in Rome like her and her entourage were taking up like two like big white couches and like people were just walking by like totally like intimidated not talking to them like whatever they just kind of owned that space
0: yeah it's very Um, very high school cafeteria
1: yeah you know and then you have like the other people who don't have entourages who are literally just sitting there with their iPods in and pretending like they're checking messages like it's just (laughs) it's it's so like mean girls i just wanted to go into the bathroom and eat my peanut butter and jelly sandwich alone oh um, well, yeah but that's the thing and people do
0: sort of group by nationality and stuff yeah. so all the germans will hang out together and all the spanish stuff which actually kind of circulates into my answer to one of the later questions about language which we can get into
1: andrew ross another facebook liker who's who asked um i'd like to hear you guys talk about how some of the players wind up speaking such amazing English even when they don't train in the US Djokovic is one example it's hard to imagine that they have lots of extra time to practice so is it partly due to English being the lingua franca of the tours and if so how do players like Kvitova and maybe even Rafa until four years ago manage with relatively poor English
0: so there's a few there's obviously every case is somewhat unique when it comes to the individuals and how they learn languages but there are certain countries that definitely tend to have more emphasis on English education at younger ages, and Serbia, for whatever reason, is definitely one of those.
1: Clearly, Serbians I mean, you
0: can't, speak I mean, great English, top um,
1: to bottom. Then they know slang and yeah. yeah,
0: All, all, all the big ones, you know, Djokovic, Ivanovic, Yankovic, Tipsarovic, Troysky's pretty good English too. I don't know if they were talking to you, Ivanovsky, but spoken to you, talking. That's how good my English is. <laughs> yeah, so those people all do well. The Germans all speak great English. Uh, the Russians are sort of a mix that, that largely depends on where they grew up training. And there are certain countries that don't do as well with English. And I think you can basically tell why that is because those are the countries where tennis players can always get the resources they need for tennis, whether that be coaches or places to train or even doubles partners, Mm. they can get those from within their own country. So those are like the Czechs. A lot of times don't speak great English, the French, the French, Spaniards, I think, speak the worst English of all of them. And then the, some of the South Americans too, because they live in these areas where they don't need to that's travel. That's such a
1: good point. I never thought of it that way, yeah. but you're right.
0: Yeah, and one of the things I've also noticed when I was doing, especially this mix, the story I did on the mixed doubles sign-up, is that double mm-hmm. specialists speak better English than non double specialists, because it's a very sort of social world there in the doubles mm-hmm. community, and they have to keep switching partners and be able to speak English for the most part, which is the lingua franca, because that's just the most common second language in the world for people. At this point, and uh, a lot of the Americans, obviously, most of the Americans don't speak any other language, but probably would if, uh, well, actually, we probably wouldn't be the best at it because there's enough English people to, to survive, in Americans anyway,
1: but... But even just looking at it in the way that the Americans treat foreign languages, it's very, it's still very similar to what your kind of basic thesis was, yeah. which is that, like, if you, if you are in kind of an isolated environment within which you can play tennis, then whatever language that is... Yeah. That drives that is yeah. going to be the language that you know and but yeah I mean you're right yeah the Czechs the Spaniards the French tough
0: yeah no the Spaniards especially I think one of the and obviously some of them who has spent more and more time in the U S like Verdasco's English is pretty solid at this point he spent a lot of time in Vegas training with the Adidas Academy there but someone like Mark Lopez is one of the ones who comes to mind um, and I think Raneliers too
1: Raneliers they just yeah.
0: don't speak very much English at all whatsoever because they've always been, they haven't been in a place where they probably weren't growing up traveling outside of Spain or Latin America much. They play doubles with other people who speak their language. And yeah. Almagro,
1: Almagro still does press conferences with a translator.
0: Sometimes, yeah. He, I've seen him do English press a few times.
1: Mm. But uh, ask, like, two, I think I guess the last time I was on was like two years ago, but he still but had he'll, like He'll a...
0: ask for translations a lot. Yeah. So, and people are ready to give it to him. But yeah, those are... the span- And French don't speak... They're getting better, actually, most of the top French guys. But Songa and Gasquet, their English used to be pretty pretty iffy at certain points. So it's just, I think that's how it works. It's sort of the island countries, not literal islands usually, but the ones who are big enough-
1: Tennis islands, yeah. To be
0: self-sustaining there, they won't. Whereas if you get somebody like Baghdadis or something, who's from a country who speaks Greek, uh, first language where no one else speaks Greek unless he just wants to you know, talk to Ava Aziraki and Eleni <laughs> Camilla do the whole time which, which be, obviously
1: he would which
0: why wouldn't he well, but exactly. that's if all he wants need. to get anything done in tennis he has to know English so there is more yeah. incentive for him to do that so I think that's basically why that is and in terms of players getting around with minimal English you'd be surprised at how they might not all know press conference English very well but most of them can go into a restaurant and order a sandwich with very little problem
1: well, and, and bottom line, like, uh, you know, when you sit into a press conference, they're just, you know, most players know keywords. Yeah. And they hear those keywords and, you know, because I think Ben and I have both been in press conferences where, where you ask a question and the player answers and we both kind of look at each other like, that's totally not what I asked. That's no, an answer you know,
0: to a completely different question. It's an it's answer, but question. not to that but,
1: question. Exactly. But they just heard something, you know, they heard a key phrase and they like picked up Okay, so then they're asking about Um, my confidence in the match or they're asking about this this or that and um, you know and and but to a lot of uh, you know like Rafa to Rafa's credit he's he's basically fluent now he may have like a thick accent and he may have like funny conjugations and things like that but he knows to this day whenever Rafa kind of is in a press conference and he's like huh I'm like come on man you know exactly what we're asking you Kvitova has gotten so much, so much better. better. A lot of that a lot of that has to do with with um hiring, you know, English PR representatives. So yeah. where, you know, they help you, you know, Katie Spellman, she's just really she's been very proactive of helping Petra with her English and it's gotten like exponentially better since she won Wimbledon, which is great. So it's yeah, it's 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 hard to kind of gauge because yeah, like you look at like I think like a player like uh, Djokovic, I think that he's just one of those human beings who just is, has an ear for language. Yeah,
0: and the st- guy can speak like And eight. he started at a young age with I know that original coach of his his name I'm blanking on, um, the woman who they did the sixty minutes thing with. Oh Yelena Gencich. Yeah, Yelena Gencich, like she was like big on English education was in education in general. So, and she speaks great English. You could tell in that interview. So, yeah, it's just been always been a thing for him and it's if someone like Petra doesn't get around to learning English until she's, you know, 21 really yep. on a dedicated level, it's a lot She Never
1: really it. left Czechoslovakia to, or the Czech Republic to play tennis until she was like 16, 17 years old, right. so.
0: And even still, I'm not sure a person with her but Maybe she might, learn, might have learned some German first or something just because it's closer to her. You never know.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah. So
0: that's, that's how it happens.
1: From Alex Davis. Hello, Alex. Thank you for liking our Facebook page. Thank you. Um, the question is, fair enough if you can't answer this, but I've read a lot of positive stuff on Serena's new engagement with the media in the last 12 months, most of, most of which says that in the past she let herself down behind the scenes without specifying what she'd done wrong. I'd be interested to know why you think Serena was quite unpopular with some sections of the media in the past. Has anything about her really changed, or is it just the media's perception that's changed? It's an interesting question,
0: it's I a fair think, question. I think it applies to a lot more people than just Serena. I mean Serena's obviously uh, a definitely. case study in this, but for the most part, I mean the thing is, the media does stay. There are some people who you feel like have been there as long as the sport has been around in terms of media. And then there are other people who come and go. So it's both a transient and an intransient, you know, world. The media, is sort of, the media room in terms of the population of it. Both of us are relatively newer to it, for sure. So we each haven't been around for Serena in the media room when she was, you know, winning the Serena Slam 2002, or anything close to that. But, I mean, even in the last three, four years, it's definitely, you can see changes in how Serena walks into a press conference and what her demeanor is like. And whether that is just her understanding um, the importance of it or her just letting down some personal guards that may have been there in the earlier stages of her career. I'm not sure, but I do think for her, it definitely is a, I think it was, she's doing something actively different and people in reaction to that media appreciate that and will immediately soften on her when they see that or even see her making an effort on that level. Um, it can't be fickle. She's still, I still have been in press conferences of hers in the last 12 months that were not great, where she just sort of sat down and, you know, wasn't happy with her match or, whatever, who knows, and gave, you know, three-word answers to stuff. It'll happen. But for the most part, it's much better. And I think it is something that she uh, is making a conscious effort at.
1: Right. One thing to keep in mind, and it's something that I really kind of didn't kind of take seriously until I started having to do this a lot, was just kind of understanding the the concept of of, a press conference. In a best case scenario, it's conversational. Um, It shouldn't be too much of, you know, and it shouldn't come off as an interrogation. And at the same time, it shouldn't, you know, the player can't just sit up there and give you yes or no answers. You know, everybody's uh, the purpose of a press conference it's not just, like, you come in, we ask you questions, you answer them, and you leave. Uh, the purpose of the press conference is we have to ask questions in order to get certain answers so that we can go back into the press room and write our stories as to what happened in this match or in this tournament or whatever. And try to be as and, fair
0: and informative on you as Exactly.
1: Yeah. And and illuminating and, um, you know, to try and, and and give you life and to give you personality. And, you know, you play as much a role in that as I do, you know, as, as a member of the media. And so I think that that sometimes I get the sense that maybe the that's not really there isn't much sympathy to that um, kind of dynamic from fans that that sometimes it's like, well, it's the media's job to, I don't know, get the good questions or get the good answers, make sure the players aren't giving redundant, boring answers to the extent the players give a boring and stupid answer. It's because the media did something wrong. I mean, I I've seen that and I've thought I've thought I thought that as well. Like before I was in the press conference room more than I you know nowadays. And what you see, and I think that like the Redvanska uh press conference that she gave at FedCup yes. this past weekend is a really good example of this, like a very stark example of like you can have a room full of like earnest people who are just trying to do their jobs. They're they're asking you basic questions to just get you to talk just i mean because they they have gaps
0: in their story they need you to fill
1: right or and sometimes it's just a matter of like look i don't even know what i'm going to write yet but if you give me a good quote i can just write off that and and the story will be good and and you get you are actually in control player yep as of uh, with respect to what i'm about to write and you give them that opportunity. Now, if they make your life difficult, yeah, it gets into, it gets oddly tense and antagonistic in that time because you're try, you're paid to do a job. It's not my job to represent the player. It's not my job to like make them look good.
0: No, it's really not.
1: It's really not. And well, it's my job to kind of like say it how it is. And then to the extent the player is cold or aloof or wasting, dismissive, wasting,
0: wasting the media's time.
1: Yeah. Wasting everyone's time, then those things get cataloged within, you know, when you start to make decisions down the road as to whose conferences you go to and whose you don't. Because right. why would I spend, you know, what amounts to like 45 minutes waiting for somebody to do press and then go do the press and then miss out on 45 minutes of whatever else.
0: Right. Because it, to, to go when you're at a big tournament, especially, especially in the earlier rounds, to go to somebody's press is a big can be a big commitment in time. You're saying, I'm going to pull myself away from all the live matches that are happening now. I'm going to sit in the sermon and wait for them to show up for five or ten minutes and I'm going to talk to them. And then, you know, yeah, it's, it's a lot of time. And time is really valuable at these sermons because the days are long, but the time goes fast.
1: It does. It's, and I
0: uh, th- think think what we've been sort of alluding to is some of this stuff has been with one of the things we talked about last week was with Azarenka, who has as not very good reputation in terms of having previously been um, someone who it was worth your time to go talk to and how that has influenced maybe how the media has perceived her or you know used to anyway and she's definitely gotten better she's gotten Mm -hmm. way way better Mm -hmm. over the last 12 months and seems to be continually getting better but when people complain about oh why did no one go to any of her? Why, why were there no transcripts for her in the first, you know, three rounds of Wimbledon last year or something? Well, those are the reasons why these people decided that a her match wasn't very relevant to the story. B, it might not might not have been the best usage of time for media because she, you know, you have to sort of make educated guesses on what a press conference is going to be like. Someone like Petkovic, even if her even if her uh, press conference even if her match wasn't very important, you know that she's going to give you great stuff when she talks because she really is you know good up there and gives thoughtful right. answers Ivanovich the same way for a lot of people Ivanovich is seen as a very good talker who is whose matches are unfortunately for growing growing less and less relevant Yeah, and <laughs> but but
1: even, even when her matches are irrelevant her press conferences are still attended
0: yeah because people know that they're going to get something worthwhile out of it because
1: you're going to get something I mean you know what I mean and, um, and if
0: you have a general sort of story where you just want to get a few opinions from different players on an issue go to her because she'll be a pretty guaranteed you know person for you
1: Yep, Bartoli, you know, she's kind of an undercover, like an indie kind of <laughs> band. Like, you know, if you know, like, tennis, like, if you're not one of the transient people that are in and out, the local reporters or whatever, like, if you know, you you show up because you know, like, Marion will answer any question yeah. about anything. And to that end, I mean, Sharapova is a pro. I, half the time, I'm sure that what she's saying is complete and utter crap. Like, it, she doesn't believe it.
0: But she says it so but, beautifully.
1: She said it so be- she's she's so articulate and it's perfect. And l- you look at the transcript, you're like, oh, that's perfect. You just lift that up and drop it in, and it's great. And she speaks in like prepackaged sound bites for you. Yeah, and, and that's okay. I mean, for in terms of the job of what is expected of people to do when they're there, in terms of meeting their deadlines and providing content, like that's kind of what you needed. So, you know, you when you have players like Azarenka or Serena or Redvanska, I think is is another player who doesn't necessarily get you know highly attended press conferences, you know, Irani. She, she can
0: give pretty minimal answers. Irani, yeah, I, feel just, like, Irani I feel like it Irani can be more
1: a language, of a language issue. issue. Yeah, it's know? a total language issue, but it's still coming all to the same point, which is that, like, if I can't get something clean yeah. and quick off you, and this happens with the guys, too.
0: Yeah, I, mean, I was going to say the guys, the one, the person who gives the worst, least useful press conferences, and I say this with love, is Ferrer. Perreir, you go in there and people are like, "He's number four. He doesn't get respect. Doesn't get respect. People should pay more attention to him. Why is this press conference only two answers?" Because he just says these quiet things like, "Well, what do you think of the match?" Like, "Well, it was a very hard match, no, and I think that we both played well, but that was just, uh, yeah, I was lucky to win." Okay, whatever. (laughs) Thanks. Thanks. And it's just and it's nothing nothing ever interesting that he says from, right. from what and, would look interesting in print. And maybe his, maybe his story, maybe his story is interesting, but he doesn't tell it very well. Honestly.
1: Yeah. Right. And no one wants to hear me tell, this is the one thing that my editors would always have to remind me because I come from a blogging background of like where, when you're blogging, it's all from your own perspective.
2: Yeah.
1: um, So you kind of, it's okay to inject yourself and like whatever. But like with my editors at SI, there's a, there is kind of like this constant reminder of like, no one cares what you think. like, you need the player to say it. Yeah, you can't say it. Yeah. And I'm like, it's oh. a show
0: not tell kind of.
1: Right, exactly. And I'm like, well, shoot. And so that you know, that's that's a, a challenge a lot of times, and and I definitely am not uh, particularly good at it. But but yeah, it's 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 different. I mean, again, that's why Lena's press conferences are are attended. Yeah, Anna's Petco's.
0: well is also just funny.
1: <laughs> well, yeah, they're very though. far. Like she there's something there. Like, yeah. you know, even if you have to like go back and you have to fix the quote and like whatever, you're like it gets you excited to write about this player because you wanna like retell this story. You know it'll be a fun quote.
0: article if it has her quotes in the middle of it. Yeah. yeah. So, so
1: there are humans involved in this. That's
0: and that's what it is. I mean people I don't think media ever set out to hold grudges or to be petty, but people who've been at this a long time, especially people who've been working with Serena for I mean Serena's been on tour now. For, and as a solid top player for like 15 years at this point. People mm-hmm. people like Matt Cronin, like John Wertheim, Chris Clary, Doug Robson to a little bit of a lesser extent, but people who've been there this entire time, I and mean, they've spent so much time with Serena, and writing about Serena, and using Serena's quotes, and relying on her to do their work on one level or another. So they're going to, you know, so just like you have opinions on any coworker you work with. You're, there's going to be yeah. things you like and don't like about this person's performance. And I guess the thing is with media, you get to fill out evaluations of every person <laughs> and publish them, which is a little bit different. But I think yeah. people try to do their fairest. And you have to understand why people, why media do have to do inevitably form opinions about players and how useful or not useful yeah. they are in press. Because you have to. Yeah. I mean, you can't. Go, you, I couldn't possibly go to any Wells and like sit down and hopefully and request Ferrer over and over again and expect the best. I have to have learned my lesson from that. All right. So yeah. All
1: right. That's just how it is. And, uh, but yeah, no. But I mean, getting back to the, the the crux of the question in terms of like what Serena did specifically. I mean, obviously, I wasn't in. I don't think I've ever really been in any like really bad Serena press conferences because I'm relatively new to the game and I've kind of really just been around her when she's been good. I mean, she's. I've I've seen her at have dismissive press conferences. Yeah. You know, that's kind of more her thing where you ask her a question, and she's just like, no. And you're like, okay, can't yeah. can't quit. I can't pr- I can't print that. And she's also don't...
0: embracing the big stages better too. Yeah. Like her yeah. um her pre permanent press conferences at Grand Slams, which are some of the most sort of high profile ones players give a lot of times because those stories written off just press conferences mm-hmm. of those things. Those are always very good. And she's getting up for the big occasions more and more. It seems like I went to one that she did in some really small world team tennis thing a couple years ago, and it was just like you know nothing, or just like very mm-hmm. much just you know repeating the question back to you in the form of a statement and just, you know, not much there. But yeah. she's getting better and better and it seems more a lot more relaxed and present and willing to make jokes and just, you know, looser. So much so much looser. So I think
1: the big I think the big thing that I've kind of caught on is that like I feel like she feels less attacked. Yeah, definitely. You know, like she doesn't need to be on the defensive that uh and and you see this in the way that the you know, kind of the press has kind of written her as she's gotten older, is that like now she is kind of um she gets a sympathetic a lot more than figure. She used to too. Yeah, and and she's a sympathetic figure, I think, in a lot of ways. And I think that people want to see her do well, and you know, and obviously going through what she went through, you know, two years ago will will change a person's perspective. Where you I just know. kind of are kind of like, well, why am I really all that worried about what happens in a press conference, you know? And then the flip side of that is then you'll have other, you know, certain players who you know get burned by comments in the press like once like andy murray you know makes one off-the-cuff comment about english english soccer and his entire personality and career and persona is is personified by it and he, and he can't seem to shake it no matter what so you can understand kind of like the reticence of these players to to really ever say anything uh interesting as well so
2: yeah.
1: it's not an easy three-minute drill no it's you know not. that we all have to go through but it's uh, i don't envy them but at the same time i don't really envy us either <laughs> no,
0: it's not as envy it's, it's not it's not as enviable a thing as people would think cause maybe
1: ah no, cuz sometimes you like get back to your desk and you just like throw your notepad down you're just kind of like what am i supposed to write from that like yeah. you know, I, I don't I, it, there's nothing so
2: yeah
1: happens
0: so now it's time for another installment of the popular take a number segment where we pick a number between 1 and 100 and talk about the player who uh, corresponds to that number on the ATP and WTA rankings. Uh, so we go to our random number generator, and we push the button, and it spits out for us number 54, which is right down the middle. Can't really complain about that, I guess. We'll find a way. Yeah, we will. We'll find a way. Okay. It's pretty good on the men's side.
1: Solid on the ladies.
0: Cool. Courtney, who do we have on the women's side for take
1: a number? We have the 2010 French Open champion, one Francesca Schiavone.
2: Nice.
1: Who has now fallen to number 54 in the world, but uh, number one in many of our hearts.
2: Not
0: nice for her that she's down there, but nice for nice for us that we went down there and found
1: her. Exactly, we come to you, Fran. <laughs> we come to you.
0: Exactly. Uh, so her her dance partner will actually be sitting out this dance because he probably can't move on his leg too much yet. It is uh, the fast-rising American comeback hero
1: facing Aww. a small setback
0: now, Brian Baker. Brian Baker, by the way, mm-hmm. his career, is near his career high at 52 at number 54. So oh. he's actually, his ranking hasn't, I mean, he has no points to defend the next few months, yeah. which is, you know, double-edged sword for him because he really had an opportunity to make a move here he did but he can't so but yes yeah, so let's start let's start with him actually because okay. maybe there's a little bit less to say about him I'm, or at least you know things are more expected about him Sure. Uh, Courtney obviously we talked I think on the last episode about Baker's injury but what do you make of this I mean this time last year in 2012 I'm not 100% sure I knew who Brian Baker was
1: I definitely did not yeah. I am not ashamed to say that I
0: sort of knew the name but I would have had no idea really what what it meant
1: yeah, I mean I I think that that was um what was really striking about kind of rediscovering Brian Baker, I suppose, like last year in, you know, May or or you know, April, um depending on when you got onto the got onto the train, but um just to hear kind of all those stories about him, you know, being one of the guys who was supposed to compete alongside Andy Roddick as the new, the, the next number 1 American. Yeah. Um, That's what Roddick thought, that that when Roddick kind of surveyed the field as to who his contemporaries were at the time when he was a teenager and, you know, who he thought would be right there with him uh, kind of nipping at his heels or that he'd be chasing, he thought it would be Baker. And, you know, given how, you know, differently their careers ended up going... Um, I think Brian Baker is just like a really uh, aside from being I think just a great player, really fun to watch very nice
0: watch game, very fluid, yeah,
1: just old school, yeah, you know it's like a, a very fluid old school game that's really fun, um aside from all of the kind of the the x's and o's of of the tennis, he's just like a very good kind of touchstone and reminder, I think to everybody just about how. Um,
0: you're lucky to be here basically
1: yeah I mean that, that's really what it is because it's a good luck or bad luck um, so much of it is luck not just being able to play you know play injury free and never have never stop, uh, step off of a curb in a freakish way and you know tweak your leg or something like that run like into two a days fire hydrant a yeah. run, into, run into a fire hydrant um, you know a bunch of different uh, fall through a, a, a glass table yeah um, you know, to not have those things happen and to to kind of have a a healthy career, and then sometimes just also recognizing that sometimes your body just doesn't cooperate that you can do all the right things, yeah, sometimes like you know just genetics or whatever it is, your body is just not built uh to play professional tennis, and you know to, so for Baker to really have that second coming last last the last you know eight months was really great. I really hope he gets back i got uh, i'm
0: i have yeah. I have a lot of confidence just because he's done this so many times before. And he's actually been writing for USA Today, Mm -hmm. doing guest columns for them. They've been really interesting, actually. And uh, he's just really giving some pretty good details on what his recovery has been like and talking about how, you know, it hasn't been fun, obviously, because he expected probably to be in San Jose this week playing, Mm -hmm. you know, maybe going over to one of the indoor European tournaments. I don't know what his schedule is going to be exactly. But, I mean, you know, he should have been out there playing, and now he's once again – Back where he was and it's just and he's doing big things i mean he was on his way to beating sam Quer in that match it's yeah. always fair to say i mean he won the first set at tiebreak wonderful playing set. well uh yeah. was, and uh yeah i mean probably wouldn't have beaten rink in the next round but even still he'd probably be top 50 with that one
1: win exactly i mean that's the thing it's just the difference i mean just point differentials and cash differentials yeah so and he's just like a really just level-headed soft-spoken guy it's yeah.
0: what we call a normal
1: He's a normal. He's a total normal. And it and, you know, and I remember when I interviewed him at Wimbledon uh, last year that I just I remember thinking like it would have been so interesting to have his personality right alongside Andy Roddick's.
0: Yeah, so different.
1: Like if they had both like kind of, you know, if his body hadn't uh, let him down and if he was able to stay, you know, a top you know, 20 player uh over the last 10 years or so, um that would have been that would have been interesting because he's he's the anti roddick
0: He's very very unassuming. Roddick is fairly assumed. Rodic
2: assumes.
0: <laughs> assumes a lot, um, good and bad. Yeah. But yeah, so that would have been interesting for sure. And I think that, I mean his I think his ranking will get higher than this fifty four thing. Um, his his points that he has to defend are relatively spread out. Actually, he's hoping I think last I heard to be back by the beginning of clay I guess. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Maybe Houston is what I heard. I don't know if that's official or not, but I think I heard that somewhere. Um, but we'll see. And obviously, no need for him to rush into something, because as far as, you know, talking about players, you don't have a lot of mileage on them. I mean, he does and doesn't, but right. his odometer doesn't show a lot of matches, even if there's been a whole lot of, you know, putting in a whole new engine kind of stuff. For sure. So, yeah, and it's just, so we just wish him the best. And it's uh, clearly when, when, that, when that happened in Australia, that was like a total just like, you know, stomach-dropping moment when you see him of all yeah. guys on what didn't even look like anything when he was moving
2: yeah
0: it was that was it was one of the stranger severe injuries i've ever seen it's just like he didn't misstep he didn't look like he really overextended mm-hmm. anything It was just like took a step and whoops can't walk anymore
1: did you ever make much i don't know if you read the article but uh kamakshi tandon wrote uh, a piece on espn about, about after the australian open a few days afterwards about how there was a significant amount of like slippage and falling this year on the aussie open courts and she'd gotten talked to a bunch of different people um and carlos rodriguez said that he thought it was because the court was too fast and that because of that the players were like under too much pressure to make sudden moves and to move too quickly and that was what was why people were slipping now it's carlos you know grain of salt and like whatever. But it was a very interesting piece. If you haven't if you didn't read it, uh look it up. It's it's really it's it's an interesting read. It's yeah. for uh, it's on ESPN.com.
0: And I've actually had that debate with people, um or not debate discussion. I'm not, you know, skip Bayless. Who <laughs> not that there's anything Tim wrong. Tebow
1: would never fall down on that.
0: Tim Tebow. Tim Tebow would kneel and pray after conquering <laughs> that surface. Um yeah, no, I think that I have had the discussion people is if faster services are safer than slower surfaces, um, because on a slower surface, let's say, someone like Nadal will have to move so much more if a point lasts for two minutes
1: mm-hmm.
0: than if it's a fast surface and the third shot of the rally whizzes by Right, sure. So, I mean, there's ways to be had on both ways. I think that players, I'm not entirely sure I buy that theory that players are trying to do too much on, or maybe they're just, you know, it's, I think like it's all about acclimatization to the surface, so if it was more standard, people would adjust to whatever, but... Well, especially when it's something like
1: well, at a but, tournament
0: where it's different on different courts.
1: Yes, that's the thing. That I mean, that was a bit of a, you know, disappointing thing to hear uh, early on in in the tournament. The Aussie Open was just how different the courts were playing. Yeah. So that was that was definitely problematic. But, yeah. um, but it, I mean, it was an interesting theory, and because there was a, I mean, there was a lot of falling down, injury sort of things that that happened uh, over those two weeks. So
0: interesting stat by the way, which I like pointing out because I'm sort of a trollish defender of this stuff. There was not a single injury retirement during Madrid last year.
1: During on, Madrid? On
0: Blue Clay. not a single yeah, one. nobody tried. Right, well, <laughs> it, that, 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 that's what you got to do. That's what you got to do.
1: I love that that's your response. Yeah, well,
0: so, uh, that's how sports should be. Yeah, exactly. People should not be trying to move out of fear. So there you go. Someone who is not doing much out of fear lately, or probably not ever, that's a terrible segue but Francesca Schiavone I think we all agree that the uh the moon in the sky like a big pizza pie is probably probably setting on her uh on her delicious pasta career
1: I do not endorse that segue in that was any awful. shape or form I was, that
0: was, I, I was cool. unbelievably awful you're leaving that in oh yeah sure
1: leave it in yeah but yes Francesca Schiavone currently ranks number 54 um you know, it's it's uh how how it's very difficult to talk about Fran these days and not feel like you're being rude. I I feel like at okay. least for me, insofar as is is it probably you know the twilight of her career? Is it probably she she probably hang it up before the end of this year? Yeah, I mean I think that any practical person would think that you know I I still kind of maintain even though my one of my tennis new year's resolutions was to not speculate about retirements and things like that. I, um, I did, that's not
0: a, that's not a sustainable one. I don't think.
1: No, I mean, I, well, I, yeah, I I tried. I've been pretty good about it. Um, so far it's only been a month, a month. Uh, but, um, but yeah, I mean, I, I would, I just really kind of saw it as, as her announcing her retirement maybe a few weeks before Rome, uh, and then retiring at the French open.
0: Yeah. That seems like the perfect script.
1: Yeah, I mean, why why not do it that way? You know, get to get to say goodbye to your to your home crowd and then say goodbye on the the court that that defined you and defined your career. So that's what I would like I would like to see from her, it, whether this year or next year. But but uh, you know, she's I, not winning. I gotta think
0: this year because I mean, this ranking is falling fast. She's yes. just not winning matches. She doesn't like that she has the the passion, the passion really anymore. And she was so driven by passion for so long. Yeah. And eventually, your reserves when you when you you know keep your foot on the passion gas that long. Uh, I'm just really not having a great segment here in terms of analogies. Uh, Yeah, this is going to run out and uh, running on fumes can can be ugly, but let's not focus on the now. I mean, just talk about her career and how different it's been in this decade than what we ever would have expected from her winning, winning the French open outside the top 20, just totally, totally changed, you know, the opening line in her obituary in a way that no one anticipated.
1: And I will say that the the more impressive result, to me, was her making the final the next year. Absolutely. Like that, you know, like who does that? Nobody does that. Nobody does that anymore, you know. Like that 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 actually can come close to defending, and especially a fluke player, like yeah. a player that everybody kind of thought was a fluke, right? I mean, her draw opened up immensely.
2: Yeah.
1: She, you know, the year that she won.
0: Yeah, she in the semis she got a uh, retirement from injured dementia. And then in the final, she got Sam Stoser, who was considered not quite the same, but fairly equally fluky at that point to make a grand slam final. And uh, yeah, and she, and she just played the match of her life that day.
1: It and was, really,
0: and really took it to Sam in a way. Cause Sam was the prohibitive favorite of that match.
1: That was the year again, that, in case people forget that Stozer beat Hennen, Serena, and Serena, and then um, Yankovic.
0: Yankovic. Yeah. It was that. And she was, those are probably the three, you know, most intimidating players in the draw at that point.
1: Uh, two.
0: Well, no, but when, when Yankovic when Yankovic was left. Yes, though, I'm kidding. Yankovic was considered probably the favorite of the final four who got there. Yes, yes.
1: Uh, Once the final four was 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 picked, it it was pretty much a JJ thing. But uh, but yeah, I mean, she she brought so much joy to, to the way she played, and and you, for those who believe that tennis is like or sport is like a a window into a person's soul, like, you know, Francesca definitely played that way. Like, you know, you just kind of knew exactly what, like, if you watched her play tennis and then you met her afterwards, you'd be like, yeah, it's about right. Yeah, Not much. that she was like a big personality, like off court, she's very soft-spoken um, to the point that you actually have to lean in
0: yeah. to,
1: to hear her speak, which actually just kind of adds to the... Uh, and she's
0: very dry so, in her very a lot of times. So. And, she, and she's someone who I think because she spent so much of her career never getting any press requests that around, like, 2010, 2011, when she started getting a lot, and she started having to go to, like, all-access hours and stuff because she was a top-8 player. She was just sort of like, this makes no sense to me either, but
2: just go with <laughs> yeah. it.
0: And I'll, and I'll sit here and quietly, you know, slay you with right. my humor and just, you know, self deprecatingness. So here's yeah. Here's a question with Sakia that I know we've talked about before. So she wins this Grand Slam late, late in her career as a top 20. Is it fair to say she was an underachiever for the first like three quarters of her career?
1: I would say no. No? Okay. I still I still see her as an overachiever. I think that to play the game that she plays, um, at the style that she plays, at the level at which she played it for about a year and a half, um, takes a tremendous amount of effort. Yeah. Um, And you can't do it. You can't do it over the course of a 10-year career. You just can't.
0: You're seeing the same but, thing with uh, players most similar to her, which I guess is Carlos Suarez Navarro, who has had to this yeah. point. Carlos following the early Schiavone pattern very tightly right now. Had a few decent slam results, and uh, but just nothing sustained.
1: Because like with, with, with Schiavone more than, than Suarez Navarro, but with Schiavone, like, for her to be effective, she has to absolutely fly into her shots. Yeah not a big she's not a big girl no she's not a big woman like she's very she's slight she's strong and wiry but so much of it is technique and so much of it is just like momentum through the ball of just throwing herself through it and if you rewatch that that french open final where she beats dozer i mean that's what she was just literally launching herself into the ball you cannot do that you might be able to do that for for i don't think you could do that for real for seven matches and i don't think that she necessarily had to given the path that she had but i don't i definitely don't think that you can do that over the course of a you know 10 12 year career so so i think that she overachieved and i don't mean that in a in a in a slight in any way shape or form because i mean credit to her when when she had to bring it and when she knew like she went for glory
0: yeah and she did
1: like she went full on glory mode and uh if she missed by 10 yards she was going to miss by 10 yards but that was the only way she's going to go down, and there's—I mean—I have so much respect for a, that.
0: It's a performance that gets mentioned now in terms of just you know seizing the moment performances, uh, along with Russell, I guess, in terms of just taking yeah. that one moment and just really making the most of it. And she's somebody who hadn't done that early in her career at all. I mean, I don't know if people remember this, but early, early Frank, as, as some people call her, she lost her first eight career WTA finals, eight oh and eight. And not always to big people either. I mean the eighth of them was in Luxembourg to Alona Bondarenko. And uh <laughs> then she turned it around by winning in the first ever bad gas tournament in time, which people thought was kinda of funny at the time. It was some good O seven tennis teamer there. And uh <laughs> yeah, and then suddenly, uh, with no real build up, she goes out and wins the French Open. And uh yeah, it was it's pretty impressive. And she plays with such and she won with so much enthusiasm and effort on every shot and you know, dedication to each shot that now to see her yeah. lacking that it's just you know she's really a, a shell of herself in a way that i don't know yeah. that um
1: many players have been as clearly and, and she doesn't look like she's having fun no she doesn't look like she's enjoying being on the court at all i no. mean so you know that's a that's a tough thing to see yeah. from anybody whether or not they're whether they're 12 years old or they're you know 31 it does you know because tennis this this tour takes a lot out of you yep and, um, you, you know, there comes a point where you, you do, I mean, you got to stop. stop and, yeah. You just stop and think. And you're like, why, why am I hopping on planes? Why am I hopping on planes every single week to lose in the first round?
0: Yeah. And why am I, when I could easily live in, you know, an Italian villa and drink wine and nah. pasta with my friends, why am I in ugh, fill in the blank, whatever city she doesn't want to be in. Doha. Doha. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> she don't want to be there. So hopefully, yeah. hopefully she does, uh. Hopefully she goes, but you know, goes like, post-tennis,
1: yeah, post-tennis Francesca is going to be an awesome Francesca.
0: Oh, gosh, yeah. Like, much
1: like Amelie, where you're just like, oh, you're going to have just, like, a rad life.
0: Yeah. You're going to go run I'm marathons and, you know, <laughs> yeah. and drink wine and just hang out and, you know, just look like you're glowing all the time whatever. And... <laughs> with your scarves. With your, with, with your scarves. <laughs> with,
1: your, with your fancy scarves. <laughs> <laughs> exactly.
0: So, uh, so that's, that's Frank. That's Frank, uh, As Sam Stoser calls her. Mm-hmm. and which I appreciate as many call them. Yeah. yeah and uh, so that that's uh, number 54 on take a number so now we're gonna end with our rant corner segment of the show more established part as we get more and more curmudgeonly in our old age I will start as per usual talking about actually I was down at a tennis event this weekend in uh, Charlottesville Virginia uh, I went to the men's version of this last year or this year it's at the women's team indoor championships for college and saw um, about, you know, there are 16 colleges there, women's teams playing against each other. Not all the top teams are there like Stanford, Florida aren't there. And those are both big perennial you know, powerhouses these days, but the tennis was pretty good. Got to see a bunch of players who I hadn't heard of. Someone got to see Christina McHale's sister Lauren, who is surprisingly, or just, you know, funnily not like her sister in a lot of different ways on court. She's has more attitude than any other player I saw really this week yeah she was like she give, plays for
1: duke or she plays no, for UNC. UNC she
0: plays for UNC, UNC and she was like so just you know sassy out there <laughs> and it was it was pretty funny because
1: um, you had e- you had emailed me that 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 you had seen that and I thought that you, I, I was going to ask you about it because I thought that you were talking about Lauren Davis oh no not Lauren McHale but apparently you're talking Lauren about Lauren McHale,
0: McHale. McHale okay. uh Christina's sister who's at UNC and UNC actually won this tournament Today on uh, Monday when we're recording this, and Christina sent out a tweet like yay, yeah, UNC." So it's good that she's following her. They look kind of alike, uh, not this, not exactly the same. And uh-huh. uh, Lauren McHale played with like a little, like temporary tattoo of the UNC logo on her face, which I couldn't, I don't, I don't have a camera that could do anything in the sort of low indoor light that was in there. But uh, I thought that was sort of cool. Anyway, one of the yeah. things the UNC team also did, which not all the teams did, but UNC did, is they had their last names on the back of their shirts they're for one of the versions of their uniform for like their warm up. Oh. And that's sort of where I'm going with this for the tennis part because I know that huh? you made a comment um, during the Australian Open that you said something like, if I could fall asleep in my Lena jersey, I would, or something after her after her heroic but still still bumbling performance in the final. And I feel like tennis really, really should have that. I feel like the merchandising opportunities there just to have literally a, a stand at the tournaments that sells the shirts with the players' last names on them, and really lets people identify their fanships in a very direct named way, it would be hugely appreciated by people, and it's a huge untapped money source for them. I mean, you see, Courtney, you're at these tournaments. You see how many, how many dang RF hats there are. I do because. Because it's really the most specific way people can identify with one player. And now there's more Nadal stuff with the little bullhorns. But that's a lot more subtle than the RF. The RF is like, boom, Roger Federer. And the people who are his fans clearly have gobbled that up. They have. So I think that there, I think there is a market for, for more of that to be worn on the court. I mean, just why not? If, if it started happening, I think it would be... People wouldn't mind. I mean, Lee. If it said Lee on the back of her jersey, it'd be like, you know, three lines. L, I, whatever. <laughs> It'd be very unintrusive. You could put it in if You could put it in the corner of the shirt if you need to. Be-
1: could oh. I put it in Comic Sans? Uh,
0: there might be a rule against Comic Sans. You would have to be the yeah. right player for Comic Sans. Good you answer. Good answer. Um, yeah, you could do it however you wanted. You could put a little n- numbers. I thought about, too, if you want to put like a ranking number, but that could be a little iffier. Mm-hmm. But just the last names on apparel, I, that's all I'm asking. I think it would catch on pretty quickly. And uh, you could have hipster fans who walked into a tournament wearing, like, you know, a off shirt or something. I mean, you could have all sorts of stuff. Why, it'd, be, it'd be pretty great. Okay. That's, that's my rant. Well, how, do you, how, do you, how do you feel about that issue? Do you agree? Disagree? What do you think?
1: I, dis- I, di- I, I don't disagree with it in concept. I mean, I think that it's great. I think that if they existed, I would buy them. Yeah.
0: See? That's all I'm saying. Them. That's all I'm saying.
1: I just think that from a pragmatic business perspective, I think you're overestimating the market for these things. Well, I
0: I think there is a a market, and it's not going to hurt their sales. If there's a version of, like, the Nadal shirt that he winds up wearing at the French Open that actually just says Nadal on it.
1: I think you underestimate the cost that goes into that, though, of having, like, a different thing and then what do you do with the leftovers it's just, it's it's yeah they're so know.
0: overpriced though I mean they can they can make their money I'm not worried about but
1: also like I'm not somebody who like wears my affiliations out like I would just all I want all I want I don't want Lena's name on my shirt but I do want like her exact like Replica kit, not the skirt or anything, but just like the polo top with like the Mercedes on one arm and like the weird Chinese insurance company on the That's other right. arm, but you
0: realize that you're like, a lot more would... understated than most people with how you dress in terms of tennis. You see tennis fans at tournaments, they're not trying to be subtle,
1: yeah, it's a bit not although I
0: will say. As it is now, tennis fans um, who wear, like, full tennis gear, including, like, tennis shorts or tennis skirts or tennis dresses to tournaments. Well, get, that needs to stop. That's not, that's not, that's not cute. That's
1: straight, that's straight up Indian Wells, That is Wells, very though. Indian
0: Wells. I'm, re- I'm That ready, is so
1: though. Indian I'm Wells. We love Indian Wells, but.
0: It's some nerdy white the people.
1: The local, because Indian Wells is, like, a resort town. So it's, like, these, like, pretty well-off men and women. Mm-hmm who actually do probably wear this stuff at their local tennis club. Sure and their local it, tennis know. club happens to be the Indian Wells tennis <laughs> garden. <laughs> yeah. But yeah, it's a bit intense. Yeah. So, so, so intense. That, that's my,
0: that's my rant. That's what I would like to okay. see. Um, especially for the men. I feel like for the men having it on the backs in terms of there's just room on the backs. I mean, if you have you know somebody like a sheriff, it might be hard to squeeze her name on the back of it somewhere in a traditional sort of style. And it might interrupt mm-hmm. her, you know, uh, Fashion Week persona to have this block lettering out right. there, but for somebody, for somebody like an Isner or a Harrison, I mean, why not? Uh, so that's that's what I'm saying. Courtney, how about you? What's your what's your rant this week? I believe it is also tennis related.
1: It is tennis related. So last week I talked about my deepest darkest fears,
2: mm-hmm. oh, mirrors, um,
1: mirrors, mirrors, and Edgar Allan Poe masks. But um, but yeah, so this is something that's like bothered me for a while, um, just because. I get it a lot in emails, yeah emails to me or like uh, tweets at me or comments in blog posts and things like that. but I guess I just have never really understood like why people seem to seem to I don't know maybe they don't think this, but the way that they they defend players it does come off this way that people th- seem to think that players are like under oath during their press conferences yeah or like in interviews. So, like, I'll say something, which is obviously just my read or my take on something. No big deal. Like, people are p- totally cool to, like, disagree with it. Like, it's just an opinion. But, like, when people come back to me, they're like, well, no, 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 because there was that one time that he said this or she said this. And I'm always just like, but they're not under oath. Like, why do, why is it sometimes, like, people just take them, like for like, these players, like, they said it once and then all of a sudden that's, like, the mythology just because they said it once. I don't know. But, like, yeah, I mean, like, you know, you, you, we were talking about Serena earlier today. She's a player who, like, what she says one minute contradicts her two minutes later yep. um, from press conference to press conference. Like, all you can really do a lot of times and what I think that most people do rely on, you know, the press for is, like, okay, so, like, you guys, and I say this for myself as well, like, if, you know, like, you know, if, 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 if. Matt Cronin or Doug Robson or or Pete Bodo or, or or Chris Clary like people who are around these players a lot like you know interview them way more than I ever have walk away with a certain kind of takeaway and that seems to be kind of the global takeaway um, that seems to kind of I don't know it's somewhat convincing to me yeah more so than like a one off and it does ha- like and- oh but they said this one thing once I'm like yeah well yeah.
0: and it does happen to people we'll when you're walking out of a press conference like people will. Immediately, sort of talk to each other, like, oh, what did you think of that? What do you think of that? You know, sort of compare notes a little bit to make sure that people, or at least that you're not on a completely different page, much as happened to everybody else. I think
1: Twitter does that too.
0: Twitter does do that too. I
1: actually feel like Twitter kind of creates that hive mind, which is actually why I try to stay off Twitter, like, when I'm writing or. Yeah, then, and that's not always good. Yeah, exactly, because you don't want them to be, like, swayed. But at the same time, uh, yeah. But, anyways, so these players are not under oath. No.
0: And what you said, there was a player, I think we talked about this a little bit before, there was a player at the Australian Open who won a match and was asked a question about something that happened in the match and gave one answer in press and then went to do a TV interview after. And I saw this player give a completely opposite answer to the (laughs) exact same question. And I feel like sometimes these players just answer questions. They they answer questions so much, you can see them almost processing. Like, they know what the possible answers to this question are. You can see them picking one of the available answers. And sometimes they just answer differently out of boredom, it seems like.
1: Right. And, I, and it's totally, I'm not even ripping on them on no, the but list. you have to like, be aware totally that that get happens.
0: It. You have to be aware that Serena will say things in press. Like, oh, no, Clay is actually my favorite surface.
1: <laughs> really? Is that
0: really something you want Do you, you want to put in print and have people but take seriously? But I totally seriously? had that,
1: where people will write back and they'll be like, I don't know what you're talking about because Serena said that's her favorite surface. And I'm like, okay.
0: <laughs> yeah, no.
1: Yeah, she did say that. I say a lot of things. <laughs> so we,
0: we all, I mean, if we, if we had every single thing, I'm sure we'd contradict ourselves if you go through, like, if someone's been transcribing our shows, which I hope oh, for sure. I hope has happened, by the way. Uh, <laughs> if someone's doing that, I'm sure if you line up something we said in episode four versus 17 versus this one, I mean, it will be, right. it will not be a complete circle all the way overlapping on that Venn diagram. We're going to, you know, just shift just because right. when you talk, you just process your brain in different ways. Yeah, it just happens. Yeah conversation yeah so that's that's a yes, good one that was my yeah good so players and should know also if a player goes into a press and says something you know just if especially if it's something like a controversial thing like you ask you know I remember there was one time I was at a match where a player uh, was starting to lose they were much hiring player they were starting to slip away and so they broke a racket really dramatically and then like really slowly walked to their chair and got a new one clearly trying to ice the other person and then, like, they asked about it afterwards, it's like, no, I would never do that. Like, you, you can't really always believe what they're saying.
1: No, well, that's the thing, too. There's also that where it's like something will happen and then the player will give an answer. And so everybody's like, well, see, like, he, did, so like, he didn't he yeah. didn't mean it because he said, I'm like, no. since when does that happen in real life? Like, you know what I mean? Like, in real life, since when do like does anybody just, like, take anybody's word for it? Yeah. Like, even going back to, like, the Azarenka thing, like what we were talking about before, it's like, oh, no, but Vika said this. I'm like, okay. Like, if you choose to believe that, that's fine. But there is an option not to believe that. <laughs> like, that's just kind of how it is. That's how that's but.
0: how conversation and humans work. Yeah. You so. can't take everything. If you took everything at face value, you'd be very, very naive. Right. And that's part of the, the role of, of, I guess, what, what our job is in this world is to... Uh, your job. My job. Find my job or... <laughs> you know you have opinions too. You can, you can, you know. Make...
1: I have opinions, but that's the difference, though. Is like my, what I have, what I do is I opinionate. Okay. But you like actually report.
0: I can opinionate,
1: and so, it, but yeah, no. But that's but the the podcasts are more your outlet for opinion. Yeah, this <laughs>
0: is me unfiltered.
1: Exactly, you unfiltered is good. Well, thank you, thank you.
0: So hopefully, everyone has enjoyed that unfilteredness for the last however long you've been listening we appreciate you listening as always absolutely we will talk to you again for sure a couple times before indian wells and then we'll be out at indian wells uh soaking up you know sun and 50 degree weather so it'll be nice
1: did you just cite like did you just quote in celsius no
0: i was actually just thrown off that but so remember it can actually get pretty cold there
1: yes it does at night yeah Yes. yes. Okay. That was like super confused. I'm like, what? Yeah,
0: that wasn't. Uh, th- I've That's... been talking for too long. This is what I'm saying. If when you, when you keep talking for this long, you stop making sense. So cut...
1: you still so, you still got your Aussie hangover. It's okay. cut
0: everybody some slack. I could really use a Tim Tam right now. Not gonna <laughs> bring a lot of clarity. Uh, and with that, we'll we'll end it. Bye, guys.
2: Cool. <laughs>